Welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 54. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Do you love vintage cars? Then go to CarsYeah.com and get a free copy of the fantastic Filler Up book. It's a full-color ebook filled with fuel filler fun with over 60 color photographs of vintage cars plus inspirational quotes from some of the most famous automotive enthusiasts of all time. Simply go to CarsYeah.com, click on the free book button on the homepage, and download your Filler Up book today. It's free at CarsYeah.com. Hello, automotive enthusiasts. Today, I'm extremely excited to introduce my special guest, Nicholas Hunziker. Nicholas, are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride? Hi, Mark. Uh, Hans' device is on, visor's down, and I'm ready to go. All right. I love it. A true racer at heart. Nicholas is an automotive artist that is fueled by passion. He is a fourth-generation painter whose roots and creativity go back to his great-grandfather, who was a classically trained painter. His granduncle was the famous Prince Bira of Siam, who was the first Thai Grand Prix motor racing driver. After graduating from the Art Center College of Design, Nicholas worked as an advertising art director. And after years in the commercial ad business, he kept coming back to his passion, painting and automobiles, and specifically racing. His style, which he calls period-correct art, is bold, colorful, graphic, and has a definitive racing theme. You'll find his work in magazines, on posters, apparel, films, and paintings, including murals and commissioned artwork that hang in some of the most famous collections around the world. So, Nicholas, I've told our listeners a little bit about you. Please take some time and share some more about your history, your business, your interests, and, of course, your passion for automobiles. Thanks, Mark. Well, I guess the passion for automobiles came very early. I mean, ever since I was a kid, I could always remember loving cars, being into cars, you know, drawing, sketching, doodling cars. Father had a uh, succession of Alfa Romeos. So I remember, so my first uh, car experience, I remember drawing. Basically, I grew up in the backseat of an Alfa Romeo. Oh, lucky kid. <laughs> yeah, early on, you had an Alfa Romeo, a white uh, spider. Mm. And then the car that I remember the most was an Alfetta Giulia 2000 GTV. Wow. And um, he he mounted a little steering wheel in the back so I could kind of drive along. He also had a white um, Alfa Giulia. So I think that had a, a big impact on me, especially the, the GTV, the Alfetta, because it had a uh, the t- tachometer was mounted uh, right in front of the, the steering wheel, and uh, the speedometer was off to the side. So I always, you know, that, that kind of felt like you're sitting in a in a race car, and of course it had a, a wooden wood rimmed uh, steering wheel. So I, I always liked that car quite a lot. I think as you alluded earlier, you know, from an artist background, uh, my grandfather he painted probably one of the most recognizable Bugatti posters in the world in 1932 and um, I was always aware of that that poster and and you know back in those days I mean advertising posters you know that they, they kind of they were as a they served a, a a purpose as a communication tool then over time they became art after I quit advertising I kind of 
fell into this this next career where I kind of emulated my my grandfather's footsteps and started to you know not not so much in the commercial sense paint to communicate but more just in an artistic sense that the creation was was for me stood on its own if that makes sense yeah sure yeah so i think early on between my father's cars you know my grandfather having painted in in the 30s and and kind of given me a style influence and then of course you know on my mother's side there was uh prince bera who's uh, I mean, he, before the World War II, he was probably one of the, the best what you read drivers. I mean, I mean, this was in the 1930s, early 1940s, where you know you had guys like Dick Seaman and um, and Holt, and you know, they would drive uh, ERAs. So, and, and this was you know what eventually became Formula One, and he actually raced in Formula One as well. He raced the first four seasons in, in Formula One from fifty to fifty-four. Oh my gosh! Against Fangio, Moss, and all these guys, um, you know, driving Maserati two fifty Fs. Wow. So yeah, I think so. On, from on my father's side, I'm, I'm the fourth generation painter, so I think I have. That's where I have a little bit of paint in my blood there. And from my mother's side, there's a little bit of gasoline in my blood. <laughs> what a wonderful mix. Yeah, and I think so. That's what kind of led me to combine those two things in, into what I do now. Well, it's fantastic. And I've been aware and, and known Nicholas for some time and I just love the style of painting that you do and, and the way you bring back a lot of that history, those beautiful paintings from the 30s and 40s, those very graphic advertising paintings. You bring that back in a, a very unique way. So I love love what you're up to, and I love the fact you have some paint and motor oil mixed into your bloodstream. That's pretty darn cool. As we continue on your journey, I always like to start with a success quote, a saying or something that's been instrumental in forming your life and your success. It's a great way to get the inspirational tires turning here on Cars, yeah? So Nicholas, take the wheel well um you know i'm not really a quote guy per se but um there are a couple of people that i guess for lack of a better word i look at them a bit like heroes one of them would be joe siffert um he was a swiss motor racing driver he um he was also a factory driver for porsche in the 1970s he won a couple of grand prix in formula one he raced for um, rob walker and brm and so on and tragically died in uh, 71 in the Formula One race. But, as, you know, and being Swiss, I kind of have an affinity for him. And um, nowadays I'm, I'm friends with his son, Philippe. And, and Joseph, to me, you know, he kind of had a, a hard scrabble childhood and, and fought his way up. You know, he, he, he worked at a body shop and saved his money, bought a racing car and went racing. So I think from him, I kind of feel you know, the tenacity to, to, to follow your dream. I think that aspect I admire a lot. I guess I can apply that to my own uh, career these days. Sure. Nicholas, how have you incorporated that tenacity into your business and your life and your passion around cars and painting? Well, you know, I, I think one of the things that I discovered very early on is that I, I, I kind of had to be true to myself. There's a lot of artists out there. You know, in the beginning, I really... I tried to find my own voice, or I mean, voice perhaps in this context is not the right word, more like my own look, because I think if, if you want to make a living as, a, as an artist, especially in the automotive world, I think you have to have your own look, because there's a lot of guys who, where you look at their painting, that it kind of looks alike, mm -hmm. and so it becomes difficult to differentiate yourself. 
I think, you know, early on, there were some people who perhaps didn't get it, you know, what I was doing, because they, said, they thought, well, it looks like a poster, so why would I buy a painting of something that looks like a poster? But, you know, in my mind, you know, I thought I was on the right track, and I really wanted to to express myself in that way. And so, and also, I was influenced by my grandfather, who, you know, if you look at his stuff, like the Art Deco painting posters you know in those days you couldn't print that many colors you know an offset you had maybe four or five different colors you couldn't use 20 different shades that kind of led directly to what i do you know you look at my pieces i usually have a a strong background color and sometimes i use just black white and gray and and maybe one more accent color and so i think that to me led me to my to discover myself as an artist and perhaps not everybody understood what i wanted to do in the beginning i just kind of thought, no, that this is the right way. This is what I want to do. And I think it, by now, I think it's paid off because one of the advantages of my style is that I think it's, I think it's pretty quickly recognizable as, as one of my pieces, whether you look at it as a mural or a painting or if it's on a T-shirt or the back of a cell phone or, or shoes. I mean, whatever it is, I think, you know, people can tell that, that, it, that it has my, my look on it. Oh, most definitely. I agree with you completely. It, uh, you definitely have a style that you've stuck to, and I love the fact that you stay true to yourself. That's wonderful, and it's a great lesson for all entrepreneurs, people trying to do something unique and new out there in whatever field it is, to stay true to who you really are and not try to copy other people and be something you're not. Great story. Could you share with us a moment in time that really instigated your passion for cars Tell us about that pivotal moment when you really knew that you were a car guy. You know, I don't know. I mean, I've bought cars. I've bought parts for cars that I haven't had yet. Oh, my goodness. Um, <laughs> I think that's usually a good one. Yeah. Yeah, I think it would have to be very early on, you know, sitting in the back seat of the Alfette, the GTV. Um, I had the little steering wheel, and, you know, I always watched my, my father's hands and, uh, as he was, you know, clutching, shifting, looking at the ref counter, and all that. So I think that those were probably probably my biggest influence. Oh, sure. You know, that, that that where I come out of it and and have such a reverence for cars. Sure. In general now. Oh yeah, there's so many times those those early years for me. It was my father having an MGTC and riding in the seat of that car, and you're right, looking at those gauges and the wind blowing in your face. So. uh Definitely those things have influences on you. You were fortunate to have a childhood like that. So, Nicholas, what I wanted to do now is take a look at some of the roads you've driven down and really crawl under the hood, get our hands a little dirty. And I'm going to ask you to share a time when you had a huge challenge or even a great failure that you faced in your career that really pushed you to a breaking point. And more importantly, tell us about how you overcame that situation and what you learned from it. Lately, I think one of the larger challenges we had was working for Porsche, specifically, you know, Porsche um, in, in Germany. And they're not the easiest client to work with, obviously. It's a big machine with big wheels that turn very slowly. I think, you know, from their point of view, obviously, they probably weren't also, you know, used to working with someone as small as us. You know, I mean, their clients or partners, you know, you're looking at BlackBerry or Adidas or... Um, you know, I mean, really, you know, established brands like that. So we did a, a project with Porsche where we designed a, a Porsche McQueen collection with them. So we worked with um, Chad McQueen, who's a friend of mine. He's uh, Steve McQueen's son. 
think in the beginning it was, it was quite difficult, you know, just to, to bring this project to fruition because you have so many moving parts, you have so many different people at the table, and, and it's quite a big undertaking, you know, because at the end of the day, I think the designing and the artwork that I did for it, I mean, that, that was almost the easy part. I think a lot of people sometimes, they might be scared of a, a white page because you have to start with a blank page and you don't know where to go. But in all honesty, I think, you know, that was almost the easy part. The difficult part came in uh, putting this whole thing into action. And so, you know, because nowadays you look at the the result of this project and you have all these products that are available and, you know, I think it's over 700 Porsche centers in the world where you, you can buy these articles. So obviously there's a lot of work that went into that. Um, you know, one of the, um, and I don't know if that's a lesson, but I think one of the things that, that I did or we did was that, you know, we surrounded ourselves with really good people. For instance, in Europe, we have a sister company and we have a, a really great managing director with Tiana Bister and she holds all the strings in, the, in her hands. In the U.S., you know, I have uh, Heather Norwood, my partner, who you may know, mm-hmm. and, you know, she she, she really I mean, you know, she really holds all the strings in her hands and she knows what's going on. And I think that is is really a big aspect of that, of such big projects is to be able to delegate and, you know, trust other people that they can take care of certain things so I can focus on what I should be doing, which is is designing and and, and painting and and being creative and not, um, you know, running after production aspects and little things because there's so many elements that go into creating these projects. It's a great lesson for all entrepreneurs to surround yourself with great strong people and know when to delegate and what to delegate. That's a an excellent story to share and I really appreciate that and, and a, a big shout out to Heather. She was a, a great help to me to getting you on the show because I know you've been so busy getting ready for Monterey week. You're a lucky guy to have those strong people around you. Nicholas, let's shift gears here and go to the other end of the spectrum. I'd like you to share a story when you had a real aha moment in your business and your career, a time when you realized that, you know what, I think this is really going to work. Tell us the steps you took to turn that aha moment into a success. I think it came fairly early on. I was still working in advertising. I mean, this was 2007, so about seven years ago or 2006, and we had just moved into a, a house and we had all these empty walls and I figured, you know what, I, I should put some artwork up and I didn't want to buy someone else's stuff for some reason. I figured, well, I'll just paint, I'll paint something. And, you know, I was thinking about my grandfather, how he painted and I'm, I was, I'm still a Porsche guy, I, I guess, at heart. And so I decided to, to paint myself four Porsche paintings. And I, I happened to show them to a friend of mine in Switzerland uh, called Marco Marinella, who runs a, one of the best parts companies in the, for vintage Porsches. He sells all kinds of cars as well. And uh, I showed him the paintings and he says, oh, you know what? They're great. I'll, I'll buy them. <laughs> so I painted, uh, I'll paint, I painted four and I sold four and I still didn't have any paintings for my walls and homes. <laughs> sure. so I figured, well, okay let's just paint 10 more. And then, you know, I sold those and then everything I painted, I basically sold. So of course I never got around to having artwork in my own house, but (laughs) all of a sudden, you know, this, this career kind of started. So I think that was, that was one moment. I think the other one came with the apparel because, you know, truthfully, I was never really into making apparel when I was the first couple of times when I went to Monterey and car shows 
it was really just with the paintings and the artworks. And a lot of people said, oh, you should put this on a T-shirt. This would be great. But I, I always felt that it would cheapen my artwork, you know, because I thought, oh, I'm an artist. I'm not going to, you know, put my artwork on a T-shirt. That's, you know, that's for the gift shop. And I'm, I'm not, I don't want to be that kind of person. Mm-hmm. But then uh, it was really Heather who says, no, you know what? You should really put this on a T-shirt. I think this would make sense. So we actually started out, I think 2010, we went to Monterey for the first time. You know, we had six T-shirts in the corner somewhere. You know, now it's four years later and, you know, we've done shoes and we're worldwide and tons of shops and we have all these different licensing agreements, you know, with, with Steve McQueen and McQueen Racing, Nürburgring, Nordschleife, Rally Monte Carlo, Claren, Porsche, Golf. Lamar, so it, it just kind of exploded. So I think that that was a very pleasant surprise where I guess the lesson there is that sometimes it pays to listen to others. <laughs> yes, doesn't it? And <laughs> another shout out to Heather for pushing you that way right. because as a as a buyer of these types of things, what it enables the uh, the rest of us to do is touch your art and own your art in a way that we can afford to because maybe we can't afford to buy a painting or have one commissioned right now, but we can still reach out and have a piece of that with us. And it's uh, a great testament of pivoting and expanding your brand and looking at other ways to open up doors. So I'm so glad that you did that because I've got a whole drawer full of your shirts and I love wearing them. And lots of times when I wear them to car events, people, oh yeah, that's one of Nick's shirts. Or they'll say, oh, where'd you get that? And of course I give them your website and hopefully they go and buy something. So glad to spread the word. Let's have a little fun here, Nick. What was your first car and what special memories do you have about that vehicle? It was a, it was a Mazda Miata red one. Um, and I think it's surprising um, that, you know, a lot of people think, oh, it's a girly car, it's a hairdresser's car. But it's actually probably one of the best handling and most fun to drive cars. You know, if you just take a bone stock car off the showroom floor and you're going to go drive it. I think uh, the, I had an early as an MK1 Mazda Miata. They were so much fun to drive. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's weird when I when I go racing, you know, sometimes you just sit around and you talk about it. what was your first car. And without fail, half of them say at one point or not that they owned a Miata. And everyone says the same thing. You know, the handling was, was absolutely fantastic. It's neutral. You can slide it around. And the gear shift is still probably one of the best gear shifts of all time in a production car. So I think that car is, um, I still think, still one of the, you know, just in terms of fun factor, I still think it's it's a hard hard car to beat these days. Yeah, you know, when I was working in the creative field as a creative director, one of the artists I hired bought one of those first Miatas. And I remember we went to lunch and he said, hey, you want to drive it? I was living in San Diego where it's sunny all the time, the top was down. And I couldn't believe how much fun that car was to drive. I just got out of that thing and went, Wow, this is really cool. And I was driving a 911 at the time, which I really love and still love 911s. That was a really fun car. And so uh, that's super. Is there a car that you've sold that you really wish you would have back? Something that is really, seller's remorse has really stuck with you? Yeah, I guess that, that you know. That. <laughs> <laughs> the same car. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I still, you know, every once in a while we see one come up for like for four grand nowadays and you think, oh, you know what? This would be so much fun. I should just get a, yeah. a first-generation Miata. Yeah, that's the one car I don't think I should have sold. Yeah, well, they're they're certainly fun, like I said, and that's great. Is there a current project you're working on right now that really has you excited and fired up? Or maybe it's all these uh, designs you've just created that you're taking to Monterey this week. 
Um, yeah, I mean, we had a lot of fun. We, we just did some stuff for McQueen and uh, McQueen Racing. What else did we do? You know, we also did some Marshall stuff. Um, and this is kind of an obscure French uh, brand that used to make lights, you know, for racing cars, some Nürburgring Nor- Nordschleife things. But, you know, in general, the, the bigger projects that we're working on, that we're currently doing, are, uh, we're still working with McLaren in England, and we're doing some really exciting stuff with them. Another thing that I'm currently doing, I'm working uh, with Pete Stout at uh, Porsche Panorama, and I, I write a monthly feature for them, for the, for the magazine. Porsche Panorama magazine, so once a month I, I do that. So yeah, and obviously, you know, there's a couple of things in the pipeline that, you know, I can't talk about yet, but I think I, mean, I think there's enough for now. <laughs> you, <but>. sound, <laughs> you sound like you're really busy, but, uh, and we'll talk at the end about how our listeners can get a hold of you and find out more about you, but I'll tell them, just if you go to Nicholas's website, it's full of all the wonderful things he's creating, and if you're not fortunate enough to get down to Monterey this week for the car events and things, uh, you can always go to his website and, and find all the items and make a purchase there. He's got a fun website and colorful and bold, and it's a, a great visit for anybody. Now, Nick, this is kind of a funny question. If you were a car, what kind of car would you be and why? You know, it's weird. I think about that a lot. And also, sometimes I think about what cars, you know, if they would, would I mean, here in the States, I think maybe it's an, a language thing. All cars are always female, but to me, I don't think that that rings necessarily true. So sometimes I assign sex to cars. You know, I think, oh, that girl would be a boy or a girl. Mm-hmm. But I th- if I were a car, I would be a race car. And I would probably be a Formula 2 race car from, this early, from the late 60s, you know, during that time period when you had graded drivers. Oh, yeah. Um, and so you had all these Formula One drivers who would moonlight, or not moonlight, but the Formula One schedule, when you didn't race a Formula One race, you were in a Formula Two car. So you had guys like Jack Brabham and Sifford and Jochen Rindt and Jackie Stewart. They would just drive Formula Two cars. To me, personally, I think I, I those are kind of my favorite type of cars. Well, they're so cool looking. And when I was vintage racing, I had the pleasure of driving a McLaren M4A. That was just, uh, I mean, not only does it look cool, that period of car, I believe it was a 67, and it was that McLaren orange, but just a dream to drive. Now, what makes you choose? I know you've got that racing heritage in you, and I believe you do race an older uh, vintage car, but what is it about those cars that just really grabs your heartstrings? I think it's the, it's the involvement in it. You know, I have a, a I have a 1969 Lotus 51C. Oh, great! So it's it's you know it's like the classic cigar shaped racing car, and to me it it kind of it's the purest form of driving. So it, I mean that particular car, it's a you know particular momentum car, no downforce per se. It's very lightweight, and I think it's you still need to shift. You know, you you have a I mean it's a dog dog box, so but you still need to shift. You know, I mean, I've, I've driven a lot of cars just over the years and I've driven, you know, newer cars. And I think what's missing nowadays is, is just the involvement isn't there, especially with once you get to the paddle shifters where, I mean, yeah, I understand like if you were on the track that maybe you would be a little bit faster if you had a, if you had a, like if you had a 911 with PDK as opposed to with a manual. But I think the the driving involvement personally for me isn't, isn't as, as big and I think, um, you know, and 
in regards to the racing cars from that era, I think that the element of danger is still is still there. Whereas I think I, I think racing is a little bit more sanitized. And I understand it had to be because you you know sponsors are not going to pay you to to have people killed every weekend. So, uh, but I think that in the back of the mind of today's drivers, I don't know if danger is really still there because it almost feels a little bit. It's that is it's a, not. I don't want to say it's a, a zero consequence environment, but it's it certainly feels that way the way they're driving. Mm-hmm. Whereas sure. I think if if you if you think about i mean you know people have always driven into each one another but i think um you know the type of driving that happens nowadays there's so much contact and i think that's a result of people just feeling well nothing can happen to me because i'm sitting surrounded by carbon fiber whereas i think if you're surrounded by steel tubes you know you might be a little bit more careful and you you might try to pass someone on merit and not just you know plow through someone sure sure well i've was uh, having a conversation with my son, who's he's 20 years old, and we were talking about people knowing how to drive manuals. And he said, you know, one of the best anti-theft devices in my car, his daily driving car, is it's a manual. Nobody knows how to drive them, so no one's going to steal it. <laughs> so I, I thought that was a funny observation. But when he was in high school, I think he said, I think I'm the only guy in my high school that, that has a manual gearbox in my car. Everybody has a, they don't know how to drive. So well, this talk about racing is a good segue into the next part of our discussion, and that is the last lap. And this is where I fire off a series of questions, and you give our listeners very quick blips of the throttle answers. Being a racer, you should be real good at this. Are you ready? Sure. Okay. What is the best automotive advice you've ever received? I think it came from my friend in Switzerland, Marco Marinello, and he's he's the one who bought my first four paintings and he's, he's dealt, you know, a lot in the Porsche world. And he, early on, he told me when I told him that I was going to get involved with Porsche and, you know, larger companies like that, he told me to be very careful and make sure that you sit in the same table as your partners. And at first I didn't really understand what he meant, but I think, I guess it's just another way of saying to make sure that you, whoever you get involved with, you have the same goals that you profit at the same time. Because, you know, in a weird way, it's almost like you're, when you get involved with large companies, you're either with them or against them. Mm-hmm. So if, if you want to be with them, I think it, you should try to be in a position where you you both have the same goal in mind. Because otherwise, you know, when you have conflict, I, I, obviously it, it doesn't create a good working environment. But it, especially if you get involved with larger companies that when it comes to conflict, I don't think you're going to win. Right. Um, just because, you know, uh, I mean, that's just the nature of things. Yeah. They're just so too big. You can get, right. So if you can get yourself, you know, however, however you can try to do it, if you can carve out a position or a, a, a situation where you both have the same interest at heart, I think, that was a good piece of advice I got early on. Great advice. And years ago I did a, licensing agreement with uh, Ferrari. And as you were sharing some of your stories with Porsche, I was just sitting here nodding my head going, oh gosh, yes, I remember dealing with Ferrari. It was a, it was fun time, but it was a great challenge. It worked out in the end, but yeah, being at the same table, great advice. Would you share one of your personal habits that you believe contributes to your success? Personal habits? Well, right now, I guess it's just we work a lot I mean, you know, a lot of times, you know, if you watch the painting films, maybe a lot of people think it's it's quite easy what we do, but it's actually a lot of work. Mm-hmm. We haven't taken a vacation in seven years. I think the longest I've gone in that time span 
without work is maybe like a 48-hour span, which I know isn't very healthy, and we're looking to, to take some time off you know, as soon as we can. But I think, I, I guess it's just the work ethic that even though, you know, we grew quite quickly, but I think it was it was literally done on, on, on the back of hard work. Well, you know, there's no magic, there's no magic potion or no magic bullet. You know, you just have to put your nose to the grindstone. Well, entrepreneurs out there, yes, it is exactly right. And those people that have their own businesses know this. You just have to work really hard. And if you work really hard and stay true to who you are, you can succeed. Great advice there. You just got to work hard, but you need to take a few days off. Yeah, Nick, take some time off if you can. <laughs> I know, I'll try. I'm sure you hear that from everybody, but uh, here it is a Sunday afternoon and you and I are working. I, I, I get it. Is there a resource out there that you would like to share with our listeners that you really enjoy? Maybe it's a website that you visit often or a forum or emails you get from another company. Um. Well, obviously, you know, your website's great. Oh, well, I thank think, you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think it, it's a nice cross-section for younger folks who maybe, you know, they know they want to do something about cars, but they don't perhaps don't know what exactly they want to do. And I think it's great because you have all different kinds of people, you know, from older, younger, some of them restoration. You have artists, you have business people. So I think um it, it kind of gives you a nice cross section of what you can do with cars you know because some of the things you may just not even know existed i actually read a lot of uh um autosport magazines from the 1970s i i don't know i mean i just kind of I, I like i guess in my head and kind of in that era with the cars that i like and the art that i paint uh, so and it's actually quite interesting to see that the exact same complaints that you have nowadays, you know, like in terms of editorially, that Formula One cars look ugly and the noses are too high and um, and and racing is boring. And if you read a car magazine from the 1970s, it's exactly the same thing. They say, <laughs> why are the cars so ugly in 1970? Yeah. The Maserati 250F from 1950 was so much more beautiful. And back then, you know, people were doing real racing because the Grand Prix lasted three hours and now it only lasts two and a half. And, and nowadays, you know, you have, I don't want to say Mickey Mouse, but you have races that last an hour and 20 minutes. So mm -hmm. it's just, I think it's just a sign of the times. But I, I just, I think it's just fun to, to kind of look at how everything repeats. Everything old is new again. Well, you talk about reading, Nicholas. Is there a book that you could share with our listeners that you've had time to recently read that you really enjoyed? I have a, I mean, I have a, a lot of books. Um, a lot of them is also for research purposes. There's so many car books, really, that you can almost have to to maybe f find a, an area that you like, right? Um, because otherwise, you know, it's kind of like starting to collect model cars. I don't think you can just start collecting model cars because there's just too many of them. So you kind of yeah. give yourself some parameters, maybe. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I have a lot of Porsche books. I have a lot of racing books. Actually, one book that I enjoyed, which Heather gave me, what it, it was, it was kind of like a, um, a who is who of Formula One. So it's every Formula One racer who has ever driven a Formula One race. Oh wow! And there's a, a bio. I mean, it's it's kind of. I mean, obviously, if you look at Jackie Stewart's page, he gets as much space as Joe Schlesser, who's driven one race. So obviously, it doesn't really equate. But I think it's just interesting to see how they got into racing, and to me, that's kind of an interesting. I, I'm always curious about how people started racing, especially in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, um, because, you know, in, in, the, in the 30s, I mean, racing, it was kind of like, a, it was a gentleman's sport. You had to be wealthy to some extent, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, just like my granduncle, you know, he didn't really work. 
um, and his his cousin bought his cars or you had you know great heirs you know like Rob Walker from the Johnny Walker fortune or Deportaggio who was nobility and all the, and, and playboys and so I think from there you kind of it's just interesting to see how they got into racing do you remember the uh the title of that book or the author or maybe you can email it to me later so I can put it up on your I would, I would have to look it up but okay. I think it's yeah, but it's it's almost like an almanac in a way. You know, it's just it, it's literally like the size of a phone book. Oh wow! And it it just has like a brief blurb about every Formula One driver ever. I'll remind our listeners that you can find all these resources that Nicholas has shared with us at carsyad.com dot com slash Nicholas Hunziker. And I'll have Nicholas uh, shoot me an email with the title of that book so we can get that up there for you. Okay, Nicholas, we're up to the last question. We're at the checkered flag now. You know what that means? This last question can be a real doozy. If you could only have one collector car in your garage, and this is something you can't sell to buy a bunch of other cars with, and money is no object, I'm going to let you have whatever you want, what would that car be, and why did you choose it? Um, is this a street car or a racing car? It can be any car you want. Yeah, I mean, that is, I thought about this. is so difficult for me. I mean... It would, I mean, it would have to be carbureted, mm-hmm. but it, it, yeah, it's just so difficult to choose. I mean, you know, I, I have a 68 911 that I absolutely love. I, at, at some point I was going to say McLaren F1, but that's kind of almost like it's, it's too easy to pick that car. <laughs> um, well, that's why I asked this question last, because it is a real doozy. It can be a challenge. Some people have the answer coming out of their mouth before I finish asking the question. In others, it's a real tough one. But that's why I ask it. I mean, more importantly, once you tell me what it is, I want to know why. Because it is very telling for some people, at least for the listeners, oh, that's what it is about that car. Right. I, I think I would still have to, at the end of the day, I would pick a race car. I would pick a, I would pick a Formula 2 race car from, from you know, 68, mm-hmm. you know, like a, like a McLaren or a, a Brabham or a Lotus with a, with an FVA engine in it. Sure. Well, those are those are awesome power plants. And uh, as I said, having dr- I had the pleasure of driving one. Oh, my gosh. I think you, you picked a great car there. So, okay, I'm going to make you decide, though. You you had three marks there. Which one is it going to be? Um, uh, <laughs> I know. I know I'm evil. I'm you know, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I'm... I have a relationship with McLaren, so that would be the easy way out if I just said McLaren. But I think I'm going to go with the probably a Brabham. Brabham, awesome, great cars, great history, great looks, super choice. Nicholas, you've taken us on a great ride today, and I've really enjoyed talking with you and your stories. And I want to thank you for taking time out of your incredibly busy schedule to be with me today. If you could give our listeners one parting piece of guidance before you drive off into the sunset in that Brabham race car. And let our listeners know what's the best way they can learn more about you and your business, and then we're going to say goodbye. Best way to find out about us if you just go to nicholashunziker.com. So that's just my first and last name.com, and that's kind of the hub. So from there, you can go to check out the paintings, you can watch the films, you can check out the apparel, you can visit all of our partners we do business with. So that's kind of the best place to go. And obviously, if you're in Monterey next or this coming week, we're going to be at the Works Reunion. And so we have a stand there. And we also have a large stand at the the track for all three days. 
Awesome. So it will be in Laguna Seca. And one parting piece of guidance for our listeners before I let you go. I, I think this goes back to the the thing we talked about in the beginning is just to, to be true to yourself. And, and, you know, if you're an artist, I think it would be good to find your own style, uh, hopefully something that hasn't been done before. I mean, in my own career, I, I, I'm usually not interested to do anything that, that, that someone has done before because I just don't see the point in it. So for me personally, it was, it was very important to find my own style and you know in in general i think if you can put yourself in a position where you can utilize your strengths and your own talents i think that's a good way to go because a lot of times when you're asked to do things that you don't really want to do or you can't do or you're not interested in doing the result ultimately suffers so if you can position yourself uh you know work towards your strengths i think that that's that's um you know something that that worked out well for me, but it's also something that's taken me quite a while to learn. Well, great advice. I really appreciate that. And I'll let our listeners know, if you go to Nicholas's website, and his last name is H-U-N-Z-I-K-E-R, we've referenced the word films a couple times, and there are some very cool films, very short films you can watch about how Nicholas creates his art. And if you like him on his Facebook page, you'll get some of those emails from him that'll have those little bits and snippets of those films, I'd really encourage you to go check those out. They're really fantastic. You can see how his creations come together right there in front of your eyes. It's wonderful. So again, listeners, you can find links to everything we've talked about today at carsyeah.com slash Nicholas Hunsicker, or you can just go to the carsyeah.com website, type in Nicholas in the search bar, and his show notes page will pop right up. Nicholas, thanks for being so generous with your time today, your expertise, and sharing your experiences with our listeners. Until we talk again, we'll see you down the road. Thanks so much, Mark. It was a pleasure to be on your show. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah. Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah!